I'm happy to introduce tonight's speaker, Leslie H. Gelb. Mr. Gelb is President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. He first entered government service in the 1960s, becoming Director of Policy Planning and Arms Control for International Security Affairs at the Defense Department. While there, he directed the Pentagon Papers Project, chronicling the Vietnam conflict. He went on to become a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times, briefly interrupting his journalistic work to join the Carter administration as Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. Mr. Gelb has authored several books and articles. His latest book, Power Rules, examines how to think about and use international power in the 21st century. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Leslie Gelb. My mother was always embarrassed when I was introduced because she thought what it proved is I couldn't keep a job. <laughs> <clears throat> Come stroll with me for a half an hour <clears throat> through the history of a word, power, through the history of an instrument, power, that was and is the principal coin of the international realm. If anything gets done, it's because of power. If problems are caused, it's because of power. If problems are solved, it's because of power. It's the heart of the matter, and yet we hardly ever think about it. So come stroll with me, and I'll take you through the history that I myself went through in trying to figure out where this beast stood in the 21st century. Power is something much more than persuasion, which is an intellectual process, it's reasoning. And it's something much less than military force, which is a physical process. It's in between. It's political, psychological, pressure and coercion, using your resources, your carrots and your sticks and your position in the world to get someone to do something they don't want to do. That's the heart of it. It's political and psychological. It was understood, I think, much better in ancient times than it was throughout most of our history. If you go back to the ancient Chinese, they had such a clear notion of what this thing was. And they, <clears throat> some of the ancient writers talked about it in terms of making bows and arrows, uh, the very process of accumulating all this to create a sense of awe in your opponents. And then the process of pulling the drawstring which was the point of maximum power. Before you let it go, the pulling back of the drawstring, where everyone could see that you were about to let it fly. But they had this sense of power as potential, as something you were creating in the mind of someone else by pulling that drawstring. The Romans added their own touches to this. And they really were rather formidable. When you think about it, at the height of the Roman Empire, Emperor Caesar Augustus, when Rome 
ran from the British Isles to Persia. Imagine controlling that much territory. When it ran from the, the known Western world, the Roman legions totaled about 247,000 legionnaires. Nothing. When you think of a territory that vast, and the, they had to trudge uh, on their feet or on horses to get from here to there. 247,000 legionnaires to control all that territory. Now, they also had local forces, to be sure, that, that were much greater. But the Romans controlled that empire with that little force. But it was always there, always the ultimate enforcer. But the way they ran the empire from day to day, year to year, was to create the sense of the prestige of Rome, the glory of Rome, the awe of Rome, Roman law, and the most that anyone could aspire to, Roman citizenship. It was a big deal to become a Roman citizen. And they held that out as the ultimate gift for someone who would serve Rome. The idea of power gets introduced into the West uh, most dramatically in the early 1500s by Niccolo Machiavelli and his book, The Prince. And you know, it's interesting that for hundreds of years later, Machiavelli was probably the most condemned writer there was because he talked about power, something about that word that Westerners don't like. It has a nasty connotation, compelling somebody to do, to do something. We prefer law and love. But power has, a, has an unfortunate ring to it. And here was a guy promoting the idea of power, and the church in particular, and writers of morality and ethics, they didn't like it very much. And Machiavelli told the prince, he said, it's better, it's best to be both feared and loved, but if you have to choose, choose fear. Still true today. He also told the prince that to do your job, to protect the nation, to exercise power, you only had to know one thing, was military force, one thing alone. You didn't have to bother with anything else. And come to think of it, when you look at the history of the world, the history we all studied, the world history of international relations, it was about war. That's what all those history books are about. The great powers fighting each other, and the kings had a very good time doing it. Otherwise, they would have been terribly bored. The wars gave them something to do, and they did it all the time. And wars between the, the strong and the weak, where the strong crushed the weak. And that's world history. Isn't it beautiful? That was power. And then something began to happen. It, it Slowly, almost imperceptibly, without people realizing it, uh, power wasn't what it used to be. But it happened so slowly, we didn't see it. In fact, it happened right here in America first. 
when a ragtag bunch of colonials beat the biggest, best, strongest army Britain had ever sent from its isles overseas. There's some militia who, in effect, were no army, beat the British army the best in the world. Something else was afoot here. The fight for freedom, for nationhood, for nationalism, and the British were defeated. In fact, not long thereafter, slaves in Haiti beat an even bigger British army that went there to preserve the slave trade for Britain. Britain was the biggest uh, slaving country around. And even though Haiti belonged to France, it was business and Britain sent its troops and the slaves beat them. Then we saw something interesting not long thereafter. Napoleon invaded Russia and with no trouble at all, he conquered Moscow but he couldn't conquer Russia. And he eventually lost in Russia, and he eventually lost his empire. He conquered a capital, but he couldn't conquer the country. Shades of what we're now terribly familiar with, our ability to conquer Baghdad, but not Iraq, our ability to smash Kabul and the Taliban, but not conquer Afghanistan. Something was happening. It wasn't fully noticeable until after World War II that military force, the thing that Machiavelli said was the only, uh, uh, the only uh, subject that the Brits had to learn, the art of war, something was happening. It wasn't the controlling factor the way it had been before. The strong simply couldn't dominate the weak, and the strong weren't fighting the strong. Strong weren't fighting the strong because there, there was this new creation called nuclear weapons. It was just too risky to do it. We came close once during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but otherwise, the great powers were very cautious about going to war against each other. And you can't find another period in history where great powers were so cautious and abstained from doing what they had always done before. And then, too, it was changing when the strong tried to crush the weak. In fact, the first sign we got of that was with Stalin and Marshal Tito, who was the boss of Yugoslavia. Soviet Union, remember, had five million men under arms in Eastern Europe at the end of the war. And Stalin told Tito, you're not a very good communist, and you better shape up. And Tito told him to go to hell. And Stalin decided not to fight him because he saw what Tito had done to the Nazis, and he wasn't about to get involved in a prolonged war. Tito got away with it. Then we saw the Vietnamese beat the French and then us. Then we saw the Afghans beat the Soviet Union, leading to the end of the Soviet Empire. Somehow, the principal means of exercising power in the world was changing wasn't having the impact it did before. Something was going on. And it has gone on, and it has changed the context and use of power in ways that we've got to focus on if we're to do our job in the world. Let me tell you what I think has happened. 
In the first place, the military component of power is now less important than it used to be. It's no longer the center of things. You, the big powers aren't going to war, and the big powers find it harder and harder to crush the little ones. So military power, while still very important, has moved aside for economic power. And economic power now plays a much more central role than it ever has in history. Always was important, obviously. You couldn't have strong military force without a strong economy. But now the economy moved to the forefront, and more and more the diplomatic instrument of power rose in importance. And what this meant was this. When military force was at the center of power, you could have decisive action just like that. Military power was the storm. But as economic power came to the center stage, everything slowed down because economic power works like the tide. And you have to think of it that way and use it that way. So <clears throat> the exercise of power, particularly when successful, slowed down. The second thing that happened was that power gradually was shifting from the Western world toward Asia. We all know that. We see Europe playing less of a role. And, uh, we see countries like China and India playing more of a role. But it's not so simple as just that. Because the fact of the matter is, when the European powers played a world role, they played it. They exercised power. The Chinese and the Indians, by and large, don't do it. They focus on internal economic development and what they have to do internationally to promote that internal development. So you have, in effect, less power being exercised by the major powers today than almost at any time in history. And the third thing that happened that confounded the use of power effective application of power, was that more and more the troubles in the world were not between nations. That is, nations going to war with each other, which was the world history we all studied, and became problems within nations. Failing states, revolutions, refugees, hunger, disease, terrorism, but within the nations where it was much more difficult for international power to reach. When nations were clashing against each other, you could deal with the external phenomenon much better than you could things happening within a country. International power didn't reach inside countries very well. Now, while all this was churning, this great historical change, the rewriting of the, the history we all learned. The Cold War came to an end. What an astonishing event. First time in history the, where two titans were at each other's throats for decades upon decades, and the Cold War ended without war. And the United States found itself alone at the top of the mountain the sole superpower in this new world. The result was we screwed up the idea of power even more because 
it was just dizzying to be at the top of the mountain alone. Democrats and liberals and the left said, here we are alone at the top of the mountain, so now we can exercise power in the world the way we always wanted to do it, by understanding, by eradicating poverty, by love, by leadership, by morality. And you saw the height of that in the concept of soft power. But the truth of the matter is, and I've had these arguments with the soft powerites for uh, many years now, you can't find me instances where leaders of a country change their position on a, ma on a major issue because they liked our morality, because they liked our leadership, or because we persuaded them, we understood their vital interests better than they did. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. President Obama just went on this trip to Europe where he performed in a way that I think made us all proud with intelligence and sensitivity, and it was good. It was good because he began to clear the air of a lot of anti-Americanism. And that will help us when the time comes for him to exercise serious power. But it didn't get the participants in any of those international conferences to bend toward our, our position. Essentially, they gave us very little because you don't move for those reasons. You move for reasons of pressure, coercion, carrot sticks. And that's to come if anything is to be done. So this idea of soft power, I think, co-opted the minds and the international behavior of Democrats and liberals, particularly in the Clinton administration. The right, the conservatives, the Republicans, also saw themselves sitting on top of the mountain and they said, why are we here? We're here because we have military superiority. Let's use it. Let's threaten people who are doing things we don't like. And if they don't behave, let's go to war. It's going to be a cakewalk. <clears throat> and they forgot power as political and psychological and viewed it strictly as physical force. And we see the results of that too. There's no more costly way to lose than the exercise of military force. So here we are with a new president, and we're adrift. And we're adrift at a very dangerous time in our history because it's, it is absolutely critical that we get the meaning of power right if we're to deal with this array of problems we now face in the world. And the point is, we have to do it. One of the other problems in thinking about power today is that many people think that the world has become flat. My former colleague at the New York Times, Thomas Friedman, I think wrote a book of that name. The world is flat. I should only sell one-tenth as many books as he did. <laughs> but you have to be profoundly wrong to send out, sell that many books. <laughs> the world isn't flat. It's highly pyramidal, with the United States still alone at the top, with another group of, I think, 
well, I believe, eight powers, Britain, France, uh, Germany, China, Japan, uh, Russia, India, Brazil, at the next tier, and then so on down the line. But power is highly graded still today. And the notion that globalization equalized world, world power and made the world flat is just empirical nonsense. Uh, and you, you miss the, uh, the context in which you have to operate. You misunderstand it profoundly. Nor is this the post-American era, as some of my other friends have written. And this idea is also taken flight. Everybody starts to say that. Well, you know, it's America's day is done. Now it's China and India. Well, you know who doesn't say America's day is done? China and India. They're the last people to say it. And in fact, if you ask them who is going to solve major international problems, which nation alone can provide leadership to solve major international problems, they all say the United States of America. That's still the heart of the matter. It's not what we say, it's what they say. And the truth of the matter is that no major international problem can be solved without American leadership. You can't have an international trade agreement without the United States shaping it and triggering it. It's never been thus, and it hasn't happened now because we haven't provided that leadership. Uh, there's no dealing with global warming in any serious way unless we're there to shape those negotiations. And they all know it, which is why they've been beating their gums, made the Kyoto Agreement, which didn't amount to a hell of beans, because we weren't there. And any security situation in the world, either we take the lead or nothing happens. We didn't do anything in Rwanda, nothing happened. We finally did something in Kosovo, something happened. We did something in Saddam's first in, uh, invasion of Kuwait. The world was behind us. <clears throat> uh, we look at Darfur. We're not there to lead. People just get killed. Other nations cannot provide that leadership. But mind you, what I'm saying is we can provide the leadership. We, ha we are the ones with the sole power to lead on major international problems. But we can't dictate solutions and we can't dominate. That can't happen now and it hasn't happened in the previous 50, 60 years. I turn on the tube and I see my fellow experts saying, well, it's not like the good old days where we could dominate everything. When was that? <laughs> During the Cold War when there was the Soviet Union? Did we dominate? I don't think so. We do have less power relative today than we did before. We never dominated, we never dictated, and m m the more so today. We are the indispensable leader in solving world problems, but to get the problem solved, we need equally indispensable partners, particularly among that group of eight I talked about, but sometimes other nations as well. So we're in a situation of what I call mutual indispensability. That's the central power principle of the world of the 21st century. We're the indispensable leader. We need indispensable partners. 
succeed together, fail alone. It's plain as the nose on our faces. That's how power will work in the 21st century. And if we don't do that, it won't work. Now, why is it that we haven't moved in this direction? Why haven't we done these things? Why have we made so many mistakes in our foreign policy over the year? Why are we always fretting about lost opportunities, great uh, crises, huge problems, great losses in lives and treasure? What's going on? I think it's largely because what makes America great, what has made America great, common sense, pragmatic problem solving, almost always gets lost in the foreign policy debate in this country. You know, when I was younger, I thought I might want to be Henry Kissinger. Now I want to be Sully Sullenberger. <laughs> Why do I want to be Sully Sullenberger? Because he was a guy who actually got something done. And as I watched the American reaction to the accomplishment of this man, I saw that it was this spontaneous appreciation of a guy who got a job done. My God, an American finally did something right. <laughs> he was told, the plane was in trouble, he was told, you can go to Teterboro, you can go to O'Hare, you can go to LAX. He says, I can't, I'm landing it in the Hudson River. I can't get further than that. And he knew how to do it and he did it. And the people on the plane performed their job. And Americans swooned over this display of competence. Think about it. And that's what foreign policy really is about. It's about this kind of competence. Professionals more or less agree on what our power can accomplish and what it can't. What matters in the world and what doesn't. What's susceptible to our really influencing it and what's not. But then something happens and the decisions get screwed up. Uh, we decide on rollback policies, a la John Foster Dulles, and spark revolutions in Eastern Europe. People get killed for nothing. We get involved in the Vietnam War, even because we believed in a monolithic communist threat in the domino theory and that Vietnam was the first domino to fall and would trigger the falling of dominoes around the world because communism was a monolithic threat. Even though, if you take a look at the Pentagon Papers, you'll see that our intelligence commu community knew full well that there was a flat-out split between China and North Vietnam. They hated each other, and they always did. And we knew as well that there was a serious split between Beijing and Moscow. So the whole premise of what was explained to the American people, monolithic communist threat, we knew to be incorrect from our own intelligence. From 1973 on, we knew that we were almost utterly dependent on the Middle East for oil 
and that we knew that this area was highly volatile, that we might have to go and fight wars there, that, and that in any event, even without the wars, uh, they had us uh, by the economic neck and could control the price of oil should they choose to do so. And yet, from 1973 to this day, we have taken no action to reduce our dependence on Middle East oil. We're about to enter another quagmire in Afghanistan. We can talk about that in the question and answer session. Uh, we've already fought there for seven years. And to listen to our new president, uh, we have a virtually open-ended commitment. We could be there another seven easily. Why are we doing this? What's going on? What happens to our pragmatic problem-solving capability, to our common sense? Well, what happens is, time and again, the foreign policy debate gets taken over by, by what I call the demons of US foreign policy. There's the demon of ideology or principle or dogma, the notion that we have to transform the world. In fact, when you think about it a little bit, this is so powerful, this demon, that our ambitions for what we want to do in the world even exceed what we want to do here at home for ourselves. It's kind of odd and striking and frightening that we think we can take a nation like Iraq or Afghanistan, where there are wars going on, where the government is corrupt and inefficient, and transform them into modern democracies, peaceful, economically prosperous. Where did we get such an idea? When? We can't even do a Katrina. Our public schools are falling apart. Falling apart. Our, our infrastructure, both physical and, te and technological, is at the bottom of the rung of the major industrialized democracies. We can't take care of those problems here, and yet we can do almost anything there? That's how powerful that demon of principle is. Uh, this notion that we can transform other societies. And it overcomes the common sense. And if it can't do it by itself, it's almost always assisted by a second demon domestic politics, boy oh boy. We, we see domestic politics coming into almost every debate we have and just taking over. Just look at what, what's happened in, in the last few days with North Korea. North Korea is a 10th order state with a nuclear weapon run by uh, a porno lover whose main interest in life is watching porn flicks. And this country is just utterly backward, squalid. What the leadership there has done to its people is unspeakable. And the only way they get the attention of the world, and particularly us, is to go rattle their, their nuclear bombs and their missiles. And boy, they get us every time. <clears throat> they get us every time. What happens here? You get <clears throat> my colleagues and the politicians getting up on the TV 
on those horrible cable news talk shows <clears throat> and saying, we've got to do something about this. This is the most dangerous thing in the world. We can't let them get away with it. Did you hear any one of them propose any solution? Not one. Not one. You hear many walk up to the notion that we should go and use military force against North Korea. Well, the major reason we don't use military force against North Korea is South Korea. That's the last thing they want us to do. Because even if we succeeded in destroying North Korea, which we would, our military punch is that awesome. Within two hours, the North Koreans would totally destroy Seoul. And the South Koreans plain don't want it. They're the major restraint in our using military force there. They're not crazy. They live there. If we were to start a war with the North and destroy the regime there at the expense of destroying South Korea, we would never have another ally. So what's the solution? Uh, is it to start uh, jumping up and down as if they've got us by the strategic throat? They don't. Kim Jong-il wants his porn movies too much to ever launch an attack on South Korea or any other country because he knows then he would be destroyed. Deterrence works. It worked throughout the Cold War. It still works today. Let's not go crazy over these things, but we always do. We did in 1960 when John F. Kennedy, during the presidential election, said there was a missile gap. The Russians had gained, the Soviets had gained superiority in intercontinental ballistic missiles. And the country was in a panic. Well, there was a missile gap. We had upwards of 2,000 intercontinental ballistic missiles, and the Soviets had 67. That was the missile gap, the famous missile gap. That's a fact. Now, what did Khrushchev do when Kennedy was jumping around saying there's a missile gap? Did he say, uh, you've got it wrong. It's You've got 2,000, we've got 67. He didn't say that at all. He said, you're right, and we'll bury you. We gave him free power, and he took it. And the rest of the world looked on and said, they must be the equal or the superior of the United States. And it affected how everyone dealt with us. We're doing the same thing in Iran today. We've made them into this great regional superpower. They are a third-tier state compared to the United States. Their economy is about equal to the state of Wisconsin. Their armed forces equal to the National Guard and Reserve of the state of California. They're puny compared to us. They can cause trouble. They can support Hezbollah and Hamas and go forward with the nuclear weapons development. But they don't compare to the United States, and they know it. And we're building them up in a way that makes it much more difficult for us to deal with other countries in the area because they believe what we say. Iran is the wave of the future. Why do you give away that power? Where's our common sense? In times past, we had a cushion, we had a margin for error. It's almost all gone because of our economy. And we can't afford those kinds of mistakes anymore. And why I really wrote this book 
is, as I say in the beginning, more as a book of reminders than revelations. Reminders of what works and what doesn't and what we've got to do now to preserve us and our values and our interest in the world. Thank you for joining me. Good evening, everyone. Hello? Is this on? Good evening, everyone. We will now begin our Q&A portion of our lecture tonight. We, our event tonight is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for a Sokolo staff to get to you. There's two of us going around. And if you could please state your name before your question. Also, at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all of your support. Uh, Todd Kerner, thank you very much, Mr. Gell, for being here tonight. Um, my question to you is, should our response to 9-11 have been a police action and not a military action? Uh, no, I think it should have been a military action. I think we did the right thing going after the Taliban. It's part of what I would call an effective deterrent policy. We know how to do deterrence, and as I said, deterrence works. And countries had to be reminded that if they supported, sponsored, and gave safe haven to international terrorists, that they would pay a price. So we went in there and got rid of the Taliban. But as happened soon thereafter in Iraq, uh, our president didn't have any idea of what else he was going to do. And so uh, whatever advantage we gained in Iraq and later in, uh, in Afghanistan, later in Iraq, we lost for lack of any plan of a, of a follow-through. But I think it did require military force. And that was not the problem. In both cases, Afghanistan and Iraq, that initial military thrust was quite effective. It's what happened thereafter that created the problem. And we have another question in the front towards your left. Bruce Murray. I enjoyed your characterization of the post-Cold War democratic administration and its approach to foreign policy moralistic, peace and love. However, I'm trying to reconcile that with some of the important events of that decade, the expansion of NATO, which has led to this Cold War Part Two that we seem to be in, and also the US and NATO oversaw the dismemberment of uh, Yugoslavia and the bombing of uh, Serbia. I was wondering if you could reconcile uh, some of these events with the ideology as you characterized it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to, to make much sense of a lot of these things. The expansion of NATO was essentially in response to pleas from Eastern European country for uh, an American umbrella for their security. Because they realized what Western Europeans didn't want to realize, uh, didn't want to face, was that they were unreliable allies, that the Eastern Europeans couldn't count on them. But the Eastern Europeans knew it, which is why they looked to us. So there was a lot of pressure on us, international from them, but also from the many uh, people of Eastern European heritage in our country. And I think that was the principal reason we, we moved toward NATO expansion. It, it was contrary 
to what the first President Bush and Baker, Secretary of State, and Brent Skokoff, the National Security Advisor, uh, talked to the Soviets about as the Cold War was ending, which was we wouldn't do this sort of thing. We wouldn't cramp uh, the Soviets or try to encircle them even closer to their own borders. So the Soviets couldn't do much about that for the first 15 years because they were a very weak and, and uh, dissipating country. But once uh, oil and gas uh, development took hold there and their sales to Europe put them in a position of being the principal supplier of those things to Europe, they started to do what Russians throughout history have done, flex their muscles. That's what they like to do. Uh, <clears throat> and now we're in this situation today. But I'm hoping that uh, what President Obama has said about having a strategic dialogue with them and their responsiveness to it will give us a chance to uh, repair things because it's very important in dealing with some of the toughest problems in the world that Moscow and Washington work together. There's no way we're going to have a decent outcome in Iran, for example, uh, without a close cooperation between these two countries. Uh, my name's Tom McLean, and uh, my question is, you made reference in your talk about how there's a consensus among foreign policy professionals um, about what matters and what doesn't, and about what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could uh, itemize the major ones of those for us. Yeah. Uh, mind you, I would say this is what happens initially. Then as soon as the political pressure starts and the uh, principal demons go to work, that all breaks down. Uh, <clears throat> I spent a good chunk of my career in government, and nobody wants to go to a meeting at the White House, a National Security Council meeting, and accu be accused of being weak. Now, that quickly dissipates a lot of the professional consensus. Nobody wants to say, well, do we really have to stay in Afghanistan indefinitely and fight a war? Is there another alternative? Because in no time at all, the fact that you raise that question uh, will damage your career. So professionals, uh, by and large, agree on the, on the following. They agree on this principle of mutual indispensability. They understand the United States can't dictate. But if you put them on the tube, they forget this plain matter of common sense. They forget it. And they go and say, we've got to do something about the North Koreans. We've got to fix those Iranians. Uh, they lose the sense of responsibility about proposing solutions to problems. And they join the chorus of, um, uh, of showing that uh, uh, they agree that tough action is required. They agree on what I said about uh, how to deal with Russia, by and large, and with China. There are various degrees of worry over Russia and China, but those are degrees, and the consensus still holds that we have no conflicts of vital interest with those two countries. So I think on, on those matters. There, if you sat down, if you put them here and promised nobody would listen to what they would say, they would agree that we can't do nation building. But then you put them in the public arena and they start arguing for nation building. It's that phenomenon. Hi, Liz. My name is Matt. I'm a former 
CFR employee, so I'm hoping that can buy me two questions. Uh, number you one, have to you pay for the second one. But you <laughs> uh, first question, I'm wondering if um, the crux of what you were saying before is something to the point of whether uh, democracies kind of make lousy empires. And question two, really, um, do you see the 21st century as being an American century or maybe a Chinese century or mm -hmm. some other country's century? Well, Britain was a democracy, and uh, they had an empire for a long time. They, they, knew, how, they knew how to do it. The United States uh, wants the effects of empire without the trappings of empire because it doesn't fit our self-image. And uh, thank goodness for that. Uh, otherwise, we'd be engaged in more of these follies. As far as, uh, what was the second question? Uh, 21st century U.S. Oh, yeah. or what, China what, who, who or century someone else? is it going to be? Uh, for decades to come, it will still be uh, America in the lead in this century. It won't be the American century in the way the 20th was, where we emerged as the leading power. Uh, nor do I think in the first 30, 50 years of this century will we see China emerge as the leading power, or India because the problems within those countries are still so vast, it's going to take them a long time to dig it out, dig themselves out so that they uh, are in a, an economic position to play more of an international role. And then they have to change their mentality. They have to accept international responsibility. You know, if you want to exercise leadership, you're the one who has to put up the goodies. You have to pay the price. How do you get an international trade agreement? You get it by making the major concessions, because you feel that overall, if you get the agreement, uh, uh, you can compete and you'll, you'll get your benefits. But they haven't got that mentality. And they're certainly not about to send troops on peacekeeping missions to Africa. They just want the oil there. And the Indians are in a way worse, because their only interest is Pakistan. So they've got a long way to go before it becomes their century. The problem is, if it doesn't remain our century in the sense of our being able to lead, then no one will be able to lead, and these problems will all fester and get much more serious. My name is Sarah Burns, and I have a question regarding uh, Afghanistan. People are if politicians are reluctant to go to the White House and talk about the lack of timetables, uh, timetable troop withdrawal president directly, and Congress so seems reluctant to ask the same, what hope is there for, um, what does that say about the future of, of our leadership, number one? And number two, um, if you could, so if you could comment on what we can do about uh, getting out of Afghanistan, and secondly, will Iran play a role in that? Thank yes. you. Um, look, Afghanistan is very much on my brain now for just the reasons you're talking about. Uh, I do see President Obama getting drawn into an open-ended commitment. He says he's narrowed the U.S. objective there to merely ensuring that al-Qaeda never gain, regains a foothold in Afghanistan. But then, as you look at the rest of the rather elegant speech that he gave, he talks about doing all the very same things in terms of nation building, economic and political, that Bush was talking about. So 
So nation building is brought in through the back door. Secondly, he said, there won't be any open-ended commitments to my policy to Afghanistan because we're going to have, we have benchmarks to measure whether or not the Afghans and we ourselves are living up to the necessary goals. But you may have noticed that there was not a single benchmark in the speech. How do you give a policy based on benchmarks without any benchmarks? They're working on it. And the third thing is they themselves say, and they're quite correct, that you can't win in Afghanistan without winning in Pakistan, and they haven't got the foggiest idea what to do in Pakistan. Uh, all of which prompted me a few weeks ago to write a piece, uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times presenting an alternative, uh, which was to help the Afghans over a three-year period, but make clear we're going to withdraw our combat troops after that. We'll help them if they'll fight. And then rely essentially on deterrence and containment, divide and conquer strategies. Because I believe that the future of the United States will not be determined by what happens in the mountains of Afghanistan, but by the fate of our economy and the world economy. And that must be the focus. And that's not just a matter of giving a speech or going to a G20 conference. It requires an understanding of how the government works and how it will handle the presidential policies. And the president has to stay on top of that and work at it all the time to figure out how to make his economic policy uh, uh, effective. Let me give you just one little example of what he needs to do kind of leadership he needs to provide and the focus he needs to give here for the economic problems. Take regulation. Everybody agrees now we need much better regulation. But anybody who knows that business knows that the people who've been doing all the high-flying fraudulent behavior have 50 IQ points on the, re on the regulators. They do things that the regulators don't begin to understand. Now we have a chance to write that balance because a lot of these guys who are doing the clever financial deals don't have a job, I'd hire them as regulators. But you've got to build that capability. There are lots of things like that that need to be done to make these economic proposals work. And I want to see the time spent there, and I want to see a different approach to places like Afghanistan so that doesn't drain off our resources and attention. Now, uh, Iran, I think, here's my prediction. In five to 10 years, Iran will be our closest ally in that part of the world. Uh, why do I think this? I think it because, uh, aside from its current leadership, and these guys are crazies and nasties, aside from them, this is a country that has a good middle-class base and is pro-American. Just go back and think to 9-11. Iran was the only country in that part of the world, the only one, where millions of people poured into the streets in sympathy with the United States. In every other country in that part of the world, millions poured into streets to cheer that we had been attacked, not in Iran. Excuse me, sir. We will have time for comments uh, outside Mossad the reception. Thank you. Mossad agents did not make the Ar Iranian people pour into the streets. 
they didn't make the Iranian people pour into the streets. That's silly. Mr. Gelb, excuse me, sir. So, security? There is this reservoir of pro-American feeling, and we can build on that, and it's very important. And I think in, in time, we can build a, an effective relationship with Iran, including in places like Afghanistan. Mr. Gelb, we have a question all the way to your right here, all the way to your right. And this will be the last question of the night. Uh, we do encourage you to join us to our reception taking place in the courtyard where Mr. Gelb will be there if you want to chat with him further on tonight's topic. We will also be selling copies of his book, Power Rules, Rules, excuse me, with Skylight Books outside in the reception area. Thank you. My name is Frank Casares. Uh, with regard to Afghanistan, Iraq, and perhaps Somalia, you spoke of partnering. What about partnering with the internal leadership, the tribal leaders, whether you call them sheiks, elders, or warlords, it seems to me like we should connect with them militarily, economically, and politically. Economically, we could work with them. They could become labor brokers, construction, small business people, uh, maybe small business bankers. Um, militarily, we could train uh, their own militia because they'll be killed if they don't protect themselves. Politically, I think we should use the parliamentary model that England has rather than ours, where they have a democratically elected House of Commons and they had a House of Lords. Why not have a House of Sheiks? In the Middle Ages, there was the sheriff who was the king's representative and the baron. Why not work something out like that? Hmm. Well, it's not up to us to work it out. We can suggest and we can help. It's up to them to figure it out. And in, as for our ability to do all the things you say, you know, here's an odd thing about our country again, yet another irony. We're a country of immigrants, and the greatest country of immigrants in history. We have people from all over the world who come here and found more of a home than they can find in almost any other country other than their own. And yet we, own, we know almost nothing about the world. Amer Americans are so ignorant of other cultures and histories. And to play the kind of role you're talking about, which I like and I want to be helpful, is very difficult when you don't know what you're doing. I thank you very much. Thank you.